Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. New York City is in a constant state of change and a falling off place. A fascinating new book from photographer Barbara Mensch documents the transformation of Lower Manhattan from a working man's neighborhood to its rebirth after 9-11. It evokes the passage of time by dividing the images into three parts, the 1980s, the 1990s, and the new millennium 2000 and beyond. Her book is published by Fordham University Press's Empire State Editions and brings Barbara Mensch to our show now. Welcome. Hi. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you. Did this project begin in the early 1980s when you moved into a 19th century warehouse that was just steps from the waterfront and the Fulton Fish Market? Yes, it did. And one of the uh, beauties of living in that area at that time in the early 80s was that it was, uh, and I'm not just talking, referring to the waterfront below the Brooklyn Bridge, but all the way down to the Battery and parts, many parts of Tribeca, Chinatown, the Bowery, were largely only populated by artists Mm -hmm. and these very small businesses which seem to house, for example, on the Bowery, a lot of restaurant supply stores. Uh, Tribeca still had, you know, a lot of warehouses. Um, And, of course, in my immediate so it was area, affordable a, yes it was, and we had in my immediate area of course was the full market so was your intention from the start to document the changes there no it was not about that at all it was about being a young photographer moving into an area that had no skyscrapers and mm-hmm. living so close to the east river that you could experience light in a very different way than other photographers who were uh, capturing the urban area. And for me, living so close to the water and, of course, next to the Brooklyn Bridge gave me a sense of history and a sense of place like no other. But was it dangerous at all? Weren't the FBI and local law enforcement investigating criminal activities in the the Fulton Market at the time? Because the the mob had controlled South Street for decades, hadn't it? Yes, it has. And to answer your question, of course, right away, the the earliest photographs I was taking were not of the nocturnal activity down there or or really spending years. The nocturnal activity being often criminal activity? uh, The nocturnal activity of the buying and selling of seafood, the Mm. transporting of of seafood, uh, of course, the cash, all cash businesses that would occur in the evening while the while the seafood was traded that didn't um become real to me or relevant until i started to slowly like peeling an onion get to understand the nature of the waterfront and the fact that all of these abandoned buildings that seemed abandoned during the day um at night would come alive because a lot of these old warehouses, which had nobody living on the on the the top floors, were still run by the um, the seafood owners and the Fulton Market uh, operatives. Many of them mobsters. Um, <laughs> Some of them mobsters. Yes, of course. Uh, and and again, you know, when I speak to people about my fascination with 
the whole experience of being living in that area and coming to know the men that worked there. I was there during the 80s, which was really like the last wave mm. of the old, authentic New York kind of tough guy and authentic man that worked you know, for a living with his hands. And also the whole, the whole idea of the New York street authentic character. And it wasn't just the visuals that I was fascinated and capti captivated with. It was the language. It was the authentic authenticity of their way of talking of describing things. So for me, there were a lot of different reasons why I started to get fascinated. But the old timers, most of them lived in the area and they and their parents had immigrated from places, mostly from Southern Italy. And also there were some Jewish merchants there and some other uh, merchants that whose parents um, and whose legacy went back generations in the market. But it was the men that lived in the immediate area in the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge and what we called then the Fourth Ward, which really made me so interested in wanting to get to know more of their stories and not only how they wound up there, but to learn about the their morality and how and why, for example, that the criminal activity, which is which became so popular in, in movies like The Godfather and The Sopranos, that meeting the real people and understanding their backstories and understanding their work ethic gave me a very unique window into now, that life. Well, was it dangerous to be documenting what went on in that area at that yes. time? Did it matter that you were a woman? Yes. Because weren't there threats made on your life by workers and bosses who were suspicious that you might be a federal agent? Yes, that that happened in the early uh, the early months and you know early years of this project. Because one thing that people uh, are not uh, most likely aware of is that the real transformation of the waterfront happened in the early 80s when the Rouse Company, in tandem with Mayor Koch, decided to transform um, the East River waterfront below the Brooklyn Bridge into a shopping mall, a place where people could come and get quick bites to eat. And because of that new idea moving forward and the machine involved in dislodging one of the the greatest economies of New York City, which was the Fulton Market, which was at the time the largest seafood hub in, in the Western Hemisphere. Before that, it was moved to the Bronx. Yes. But and it, then it's is like it a not thriving there? No, it's a it's a very different, you know, the, the, the market of this period in history is I was recently up there um, uh, doing a pho photography shoot and it's it, you know it's it's like there's there's no way to describe it it's like a it's 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 not an environment where you can feel 
all of these wonderful things that I used to feel down at the market. The, and, and as I said, it was really the authenticity and the sense of promoting business and an economic engine and enthusiasm. And, uh, and also, you have to understand that the world's fish population right now is, is in considerable risk. So, you know, I, I feel a little bit less enthusiastic about well, mm, are the, the, the men there now carrying the kinds of weapons no. that they did? No, no, Because you say that the men you saw in those days carried guns, brass knuckles, sharpened yeah. grappling hooks. And um, you had to get the blessings of the men who wielded the most power and influence? Yes. and as, How did you do that? As in every walk of life, developing trust and a sense of of uh, a sense of trust takes a long time. But also, one of the things that in my life that I always feel right now, I feel like I'm a victim of all the time, and this is going on all over in politics and everything, is that people don't keep their word anymore. They don't keep their word. And, and the mobsters did? Yes. Yes, and it was a, that to me meant more than anything else. That if you were direct about what your intentions were, and they they were they were good listeners. They you know once you'd sit down in in the office and have a talk, they were listening. And uh, one of the advantages I had because I lived in the, in the area was that I was able to bring down some of my precious photography books. And it was those visuals that would make them, uh, would, would excite them in a certain way. I remember because showing it, them Because it was obvious you weren't criticizing them. You no, were... and also, you know, I had a dark room in my loft. I still do. And I would make these prints. And they weren't, they didn't look like grainy FBI uh -huh. pictures. You know, they were real photographs. And and I didn't use the same kind of uh, camera equipment. I used a Roly, and that used to confuse them. And I'd say, no, you know, they used to use this in Life magazine, and these are the best, you know, and then there's this photographer. Irving you preferred a Roly to a Leica, one of those? Uh, yes, well, the, well, because, you know, especially as a, as a, a photographer who was very serious about her her profession. I ha I educated myself into which were the best lenses, and I I actually, you know, taught myself. I would test every film, um, every kind of film that would come out on the market, and you know, in my dark room, I would make my own prints and make a decision about which paper to use and which filter and the, 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 the combinations of chemicals that would yield you the best contrast and shadow detail. So all of these things were part of my life, a very big part of my life. And they picked up on this because in the end, when I think people res respect you when you respect yourself. And I was obsessed. I felt very, very, very inclined to do this project because many people said I couldn't. <laughs> and, and I felt that with a certain amount of persistence and stamina that 
those were the characteristics that I apparently had inside unconsciously that would drive me forward. So just getting back to answering your question, learning about South Street and the waterfront and the criminality and the honest people and the, 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 the rise of the, the, of the small businessman and the importance, the role that each one of the workers in the market had in relationship to that community and then in relationship to society took time. And if I was going to do a project, so to speak, in quotes, I better understand what the hell I was doing and, you know, do the, the, the due diligence on understanding their world. Well, are you still using a Roly? Because most people these days use their phones. Oh, I love my iPhone. In fact, some of the photographs in my new book, I... I How do you print off it. of an iPhone? Well, image? you know, everything goes to digital. So you you're not in the dark room unless you translate the digital images back into silver, you know, and that that's hmm. not only is it a headache, but the results it, it will never be the same because the we call them generations because each time you remove a generation of a direct of a direct process, you lose something or it becomes something else. But you become less uh, a suspicious character if you're taking pictures with your camera with your uh, phone right. rather than with right. a with a camera. Well, back in if we're talking, uh, it seems like we're we're still talking about part one in the eighties. Well, so we'll move for, on. For me. That I look at my cameras as tools, which mm -hmm. was the best tool to use at that particular time. My guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large is Barbara Mensch. Her latest book of photographs is A Falling Off Place, The Transformation of Lower Manhattan. It's published by Fordham University Press's Empire State Editions. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You mentioned the way people talk. Weren't you the associate producer of a documentary called If These Knishes Could Talk? <laughs> yes, and yes. And that's about the gentrification processes and how the New York accent is changing. Yes. Do you, do you see it as a loss? Oh, for sure. For sure. And that's one of the things that I loved about hanging around on South Street. It was like everybody talked, you know, Barbara. You know, it was like I grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah, so D's it's not, and D's. Yeah, it was not easy. You know, it was it was easy for me to, when I would do these readings, you know, guy Barbara, Barbara Darling. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I know we can't use that kind of language on, on the air, but it was like, you know, Get over it, or you know. Well, you don't any, hear many people saying "dem dees doze and use these days. Well, that was out of Damon Runyon. I mean, except you know, on Staten Island, maybe, or the, yeah, the Northern Bronx. There's a, there's a there's a few pockets, but that I thought the director of that film, Heather Quinlan, had a very wonderful hmm. idea to use language as a way of describing the disappearance of certain characteristics that made New York, New York. Um, there's one thing I wanted to backtrack from the first part of our conversation that in the early 80s when I first started doing these photographs largely because I was captivated by the environment and the light and the river and all of these beautiful ancient maritime buildings. The other thing that was happening was that Rudolf Giuliani at that 
time was the prosecutor for the Southern District Court. Mm. And in my view, it was pretty coincidental that a new investigation, it was called at the time Operation Sea Probe, was launched, literally coinciding with the plan that uh, Koch had announced to the city that they were going to redevelop the waterfront and bring in a major developer to transform the place. And thus, over the years that I spent there, the war over space and mm -hmm. operational areas where the market could function were being threatened on a daily basis. So the war started. So I unconsciously became part of that story initially because I didn't realize that. But you, as I moved through that photography experience, I realized that hmm. all of this was happening in real time, and I was watching it. You know. Was it difficult for you as a photographer? Because wasn't much of the area dark? You had the, the highway <laughs> overpass, the area under the Shrouded in darkness. The piers where the fishing boats were docked, which also served as parking areas for tractor trailers and utility vans. Uh, but they, that also uh, could obscure a robbery, a fight, an illegal transaction, and a rape, did. and even a murder. Yes, and there, all of those things have happened. And, uh, and one of the things um, that is so clear in my head right now is that on certain nights, certain early morning, you know, before I would get my cameras and go down, I'd get these phone calls from my friends, and they go, Barbara, you're not coming down tonight. Go back to sleep, <laughs> you know, and remarkably. They were warning that something dangerous was happening? Yeah, and uh, I remember one, one experience that really terrified me is I woke up in the morning, and there was a hit in the underground parking lot across the street from where I lived <laughs> the night before I was told to get some shut-eye. Mm -hmm. So that was Did you go out? Anyway? No. Are you oh, kidding you, me? You Are, you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You understood that it was dangerous. No. no. It yeah. was it was you know uh, an experience that shaped shaped my thinking for the rest of my life. You interviewed someone who was privy to the mafia yes. leadership at, of the Amazing. Fulton Fish Market during Giuliani's crusade against them in the 1980s. What Were they complaining because they liked it doing business as usual? The person that I interviewed was, she was pretty remarkable, but basically her experiences, because she came from a financial and corporate background later and got quite an education, they looked to her for certain kinds of, of, of advice. And to answer your question, the men in those circles who actually knew Giuliani and knew his family, and also, may I say, knew Donald Trump, were extremely skeptical 
of him because of Giuliani's overriding ambition at that time to become mayor. At that time, you know, uh, without spending too much time on his personal life, you know, the man had a lot of issues. And the, the people that wanted to support him couldn't because he was building his career on their backs. Well, he was uh, hostile to um, to liberals, first of all. But I was working at WNYC at the time that he forced WNYC to buy its license from the city because he didn't want to be a part of a station that he considered really? to be a yeah. little too liberal. I, I could I could believe that. And, um, you know, and the thing is, is that what people still to this day don't understand is that the Fulton Market community and all of these other uh, individuals and groups that he made war on were victims in a lot mm. of ways. And I'm not saying that the mob and the criminality and all of that you know, wasn't justified, but it was a crusade. And in that crusade, many innocent people or many people lost their ability to earn a living, whose reputations were hurt. And, you know, the biggest irony is I wouldn't have even brought it into my book at all. But it's about what has been going on now. Well, Period. The end. Well, these are photos of what had been but no longer exists. Many of the images in this book are being published for the first time. Yes, yes. And uh, you have photos from the 1990s of floods and fires that paralyzed the area. Were those fires suspicious? Yes. Well, in my neighborhood, for sure. And, you know, all through Tribeca, you know, these are things, if you're a community member, if you're a resident, you would pay more attention to these events than perhaps other people. That's why in this particular book, I, I, I describe my pictures as a personal visual timeline because they happen to me and they affected me. So, for example, I don't have photographs of the COVID pandemic because that affected everybody. And other people have pretty much documented uh, Yeah, that. but that's not the point. It didn't affect... It wasn't, a, it wasn't a tragedy or an event that was particular to lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm and the neighborhoods and the areas that I existed in and loved for so long. Like the Bowery, you know, all the little restaurant shops where, you know, every artist would buy their cups and saucers and, you know, you could live fairly. Well, the Bowery was cleaned up, too. It was where people, the homeless, tended to live. Uh, I don't know if homeless people are moving down there again, but uh. no, they're not. There, there's no. There's still, I think, one mission left. Where uh, you know the first um, uh, big change that happened on the Bowery was, and I'm not uh, in any way creating a, a bad 
uh, thing about it, I, it was years ago, this wonderful curator, Marsha Tucker, and I don't even think mm -hmm. people are that aware of her anymore, decided to build a museum on the Bowery. Mm. And it took God knows how much to get that thing off the ground. And I, I don't have those photographs in my book because there were too many other pictures that I, I kind of fell in love with. But once you create, you put a footprint of something else down, it becomes, I think, somewhat of a big transformation, you know, because you're, you're putting a museum, an art museum, in the middle of this homeless population and flop houses and uh, affordable places where artists have lived. And we watched this, particularly in Lower Manhattan, with the migration of art galleries. They started in Soho, and then they were in the East Village, and then they were in Chelsea, and now they're moving down to my neighborhood. <laughs> so, I mean, it's these migrations, but it's got to be the first in my view, the first, the first thing, the first entity that you put down there. Now, why was the area particularly susceptible to flooding, like Hurricane Sandy, <laughs> although there had been other hurricanes, none of them were as destructive as Sandy. Had something changed? Well, here, here's the thing. I, I'm not a specialist in this area. You know, I only wear so many hats. But one of the things about Lower Manhattan and people, if you don't know your history, you have to understand that it's built out on landfill, ancient landfill, mostly uh, discarded parts from agricultural products, mostly oysters. That was, New York was founded because of oysters. The richest oyster beds in the world, I think, were found in Hudson Bay. and Even the name sounds kind of New York oyster. <laughs> oyster, oy, oy, oysters, <laughs> oy. You know. So the, the point is, is that as the tip of Manhattan filled out over the years, over the decades, and think about it, it was all agricultural. Uh, everything, there were the farms and Canal Street, was, you know, there was these water canal, you know, that it, be it it took on a new form and for example on the east side where the east river is and particularly on south street if you walk it it feels like you're in a soup bowl because it it rises by the by the piers and then if you cross the street it dips down so if you're going to have torrential rains hmm. they're going to collect in certain Areas And you have to understand that centuries ago, decades ago, we had these things called slips. Mm. And there was Quenta slip, there was Peck slip, and this is where they docked the boats. And it, where it, artists used to hang out. Yeah, where artists used to hang out afterwards, where they lived. So if you think about the, the actual um, geological makeup of Lower Manhattan, it's different from the rest of the island. But in the years since, much of the area has been bulldozed to clear the way for luxury housing. 
two questions there. Who, uh, I, Why would uh, you put luxury housing in an area that is susceptible to flooding? And where did the <laughs> displaced blue-collar residents of the area move to? It's a good question. I, uh, they disappear. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's like any other community. You know, people all over this country can't live and work in in a nearby each other. They can't. You know, I was watching this piece about Jackson, what in Wyoming, Jackson Hole. I mean, half the people that work in the town have to live two hours outside. Mm. You know, and and this is a crisis. But a lot of the people who who were forced to move, even my friends, they find places that are less expensive. And that is a problem. And that's how we lose slowly over time a sense of place, a sense of community, a sense of character, and a, then, and a then sense of everything. And then September 11, 2001, Ugh. Ugh. was that the era's final break from the past? I think so. In my view, yes, and that's why. Um, and I, and, and of course, I, you know, I, for me, I'm a, I'm a resident of the area. I live just a few blocks, and I was home that morning when the planes hit. And, and I was walking down the street, and I, I saw the smoke coming out of the first building. I asked somebody what happened. She said, "Airplane go into building." I said. No, mm-hmm. and then uh, I I got I went to vote. It was a vote. It, yeah, it was, the primary day. And uh, on my mm-hmm. way to work at the, uh, I was working at WMYC in uh, the municipal building. I saw the second plane go in. Mm-hmm. Realized that I wasn't going to be doing a show that day. That's, that's <laughs> right. But uh, for me, uh, I I was home and my girlfriend called me from Williamsburg, mm-hmm. and because I live, you know. Pearl Street and the bridge, it's always unbelievably noisy. So they, I heard this like boom. Mm-hmm. So my girlfriend Margaret called me. She says, Barbara, go up on the roof. The tower's on fire. And I went up there. I, I'm on the top floor, so it was only. Did you take your camera? Well, I, I saw it and I said, oh my God. And so, I, yes, I went down and took my, uh, actually, it was my 35 millimeter because mm-hmm. I used to love my. 35 millimeter camera with black and white film and I went back up on the roof right it took me a couple of seconds you know and I went back and all of a sudden I see the second plane coming Mm. and I I I if I can remember those moments I mean I was shaking it was my adrenaline but I said that's Osama bin Laden right there and that was that was it and and then and of course I put without getting into the whole long story of where those pictures wound up in the end I never printed I never they just sat there and when I took them out for this project the the book that we're talking about yeah I I realized that there was this shot I got was it wasn't you know there's so many pictures showing the plane just as it's going in Mm. to the tower I mean those are there's a million of them I'm, who knows, but the shutter caught the plane after it went in. Mm. So there's this pl- weird plume cutting through the building that's um, on the, the diptych that I have in this new book. And that now, 
freaked me out more than anything. I was so because I can't I can't imagine I cannot imagine. I cannot I still can't imagine the horror. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at wbai.org. Enjoying my conversation with Barbara Mensch. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her very beautiful book, A Falling Off Place. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But uh, don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. We thank you very much. And return now to Barbara Mensch, whose latest book of uh, photographs is uh, A Falling Off Place, The Transformation of Lower Manhattan from Fordham University uh, Press's Empire State Editions. Now, you grew up in Brooklyn? Yes. South Brooklyn, near Coney Island. Now, that's an area that's also seen a lot of change. If you stayed there, you could have had a whole different career in (laughs) photography. Well, you know, Leonard, I I have to admit, I really haven't been back there. But one thing I should tell you, which I think is an interesting side thing, that uh, I went to this high school. It doesn't exist anymore, I guess. So Sheepshead Bay High School. Mine but doesn't exist either. Eastern District. High really? Yeah. I think that's where my mother went. I'm In Williamsburg. Sure. Yeah, I think that's. A, but some very interesting characters came out of that school. So one of the people I will mention on the air is Larry David, mm. although he wasn't in my class. He was older. And, you know, there's a thing about uh, I'm very proud that I'm from Brooklyn. And, you know, I, I, I find it truly amazing that, that some of our greatest Americans that are out there now slogging away trying to hold this country together are from Brooklyn, mm. you know besides some of our wonderfully talented artists and therapists and people who really make a difference in this world. So what is it in the duck soup of Brooklyn? Hmm. <laughs> I've always, you know, oh, I'm still I, I thinking know the, about I know that. what it is. Uh, okay, good. Tell me. <laughs> the When people came from Europe, they first usually wound up in Brooklyn before some of them dispersed and went to other parts of the city or the country. Mm-hmm. But Brooklyn was usually the stopping off place, so it was very rich culturally, a mix of of uh, many different cultures. But there's a certain humor and comedic, is that the right word? Comedic yeah. sense or that comes, that that. Brooklyn comics have, you know, maybe I'm I'm not completely right, but I I just think that there's a certain. I, well, come on, you could help me with the word. It's like it's like a thing. It's a like zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And also some of our very um, uh, exceptional political leaders. Like I think, uh, like how did Barbara Boxer wind up in California? I mean, mm. you know, she, she's one of my, I, I loved her as Senator, you know, Senator Barbara Boxer. And some of the greatest actors and actresses come from Brooklyn, you know, because I've been watching a lot of old films recently. And um, Barbara Stanwyck, mm-hmm. you know, she was, like, incredible. Um, well, you studied drawing. Yes. And worked as an illustrator before yes. you took up photography. Yes, I did. You uh, spent a few months uh, at Hunter College, but then received a scholarship to study drawing in Florence, Italy? Yes, 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 yes I did. And uh, uh, It seems to me that if you had that much ability, it's surprising you gave it up. Okay. Oh, this are we going to have this conversation on air? Okay. <laughs> Make it quick if you don't want to. No, I'm a, I'm making a joke. Look, well, the couch is over there. You can. <laughs> no, here's the thing about drawing, and particularly, I want to address this class I was teaching at the ICP for five years. You were an uh, you were an illustrator at Ms. Magazine. Yes, and yes, for and Gloria my uh, yes, and not only that, but the art director who was in charge of the mag- magazine back then. Her name was Bea Feitler, and she was apparently one of the most gifted art directors in America at the time. And they gave me uh, these pages to illustrate. I think they were, if I remember correctly, it was called the Gazette page. So, you know, every 10 days or every two weeks, they would come up with a new theme. And I would be able to illustrate the, the article that they were writing. But it was the Gazette page, so it wasn't a long essay. It was, you know, maybe three long paragraphs at the most. So I found that to be absolutely fascinating. And I didn't, the the issue that I'm having right now in my, in my life is that I never gave up drawing. In fact, it informed my photography. Is that why you, your work is always is black and white? Well, not necessarily, although that's probably a good observation because I can shoot in color, you know. But the importance of drawing in my, in my experience has been to use great art as the... Um, there's a word I'm trying to inspiration. use. Inspiration. The uh, inspiration, yes, but the measuring point. In other words, if you could dissect a brilliance, then that was my that was always my thing. That's why, for example, in my last book about the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, my whole experience in delving into the mind, the drawings of John Roebling was transform transformative for me. Because once you start really looking at some of these works of art and try to understand not only what they did and how they did it, but the context and the, and the times that peop- these artists were living in, it only strengthens you because you're, you're challenging yourself to aspire to that. Mm-hmm. And that is what I think all of us 
try to do and if we feel at a certain point in time well this isn't really working i'm gonna move off down this direction in the road that's fine is that what happened with you is that why you moved into photography no it was uh because my mother was diagnosed with a fatal illness and at the time the the most important person in my life was the california artist john mason who was my teacher at hunter college and then uh this is very this is this is like a personal thing but he not only was he my mentor but he was everything to me in in my um early 20s and uh when my mom got sick he gave me his pentax camera and with a 50 millimeter lens and I started taking it out to Brooklyn because at that time I wasn't living at home anymore and photographing her before she died. And So you weren't taking, um, making art photography at that no, time? No, no. I was, was just, doing, do- documenting. I was documenting kidding. my mother's, uh, the, the, I guess unconsciously I felt like I could hold on to her maybe by making these pictures, but then my whole family started getting sick and dying and it became like well first it was my mother and then it was my grandmother and then it was my aunt and then it was my father and it was all happened within two years and so before I knew it the the experience of capturing them on film and I I I showed I did the first photography show at PS1 when I was a kid and, with uh, with Hannah Wilkie and yes, Frank Gehry. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, he had these cardboard cutouts, like he was doing these homes in L.A. And I was like, I don't know, I, uh, who knows? And Hannah Wilkie was breaking up with Klaus Oldenburg, so <laughs> she was doing something in another room. And But I showed these five silver prints of my mother, I still have them, on a table. So they weren't on the walls to look like precious objects. They were under plexi. And so the idea was that people would look down on them instead of looking at them on the wall. So you could have your own intimate experience because when you're dead or when you're dying, people are usually looking down at you on the bed. So it was that point of view. It was like, you know, in those early years, I, because we had grants and because the federal government had such a robust um, program to support the arts, I was able to do a lot of these experimental projects with a little bit of help. You know, of course, that's disappeared now. Um, so it was really important for young minds, you know, to to try and find ways, new ways to express your 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 personal life or this thing and that thing. But also at the time uh, that I started painting, I I found like the experience and also illustrating of being in the studio and spending all those long hours staring and moving back and. You know, thank God I wasn't drinking or smoking, and you, you know that that there was something more immediate about photographs. Even though at the time you had to use film, and you had to go process it, and mm-hmm. then you had to make contact sheets, it didn't matter. It was something at the time in my personality that I felt like, oh, I needed to see this quicker. So that those were 
the early reasons why I moved to photography. And then I was able to earn a living um, doing printing mm. because my drawing abilities were such that I could look at tonalities and figure out so you were things. printing other people's work. Oh yeah, I printed everybody's work. That was before I um, joined my uh, first gallery, second gallery. I don't remember, but yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to tell people that my guest is Barbara Mensch, whose latest book of photographs is a "Falling Off Place: The Transformation of Lower Manhattan." published by Fordham University Press's Empire State Editions. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My brother Philip wrote in the introduction to your 2009 book called South Street that the portraits in it were reminiscent of the characters in uh, Lucino Visconti's films, Rocco and his brothers and La Terra Terma. Were you even conscious of that? Yes. I, I mean, you, you know, I, I was so blown away by his ability to draw on great cinematic art and connect it with my portraits. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one of the greatest. Well, you know, artists need support and they need uh, a sense that somebody appreciates their work or can understand the forces at work in one's mind when they're putting these things together. And in fact, the uh, part one of the book, you can even see on the cover. I mean, it's all you know, Roberto Rossellini, <laughs> you know, these were all... all the, a lot of dark uh, photographs, You actually. know, they're, they're very, very, very neo-realistic. Neo hmm. And the thing about Italian cinema, which was, again, woven into my love of drawing and painting, was that the subject matter was... This is why it was so, you know, people viewed this genre of filmmaking as like depressing because it was about reality and about things that were grim and people's struggles. And, you know, a lot of times people don't even want to be reminded of it. You know, you don't want to look at it. You want to just move away and look at this beautiful color, whatever, you know, that's more uh, seductive. You've supplied the text to your books. Yes. Do you enjoy writing? It's it's grueling. I don't consider myself a writer, although I've Well, had, you write uh, rather nicely, I, I do? think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I have some... Clearly. I, I know that um, one thing I've learned is that it's a horribly painful process to actually write anything good that the drafts and the drafts and the drafts and then there's, then there's more drafts and that doesn't and happen when you're printing from yeah, a oh negative? no it no this is the whole point that you that's absolutely right because it's all that's that's the thing it's all connected you kind of feel oh this print works in the soup i finally got it it's mm -hmm. two and a half seconds and i dodge on the on the left and this is the right one. I think possibly the same consciousness is at work when you're writing, that you finally, the sentence feels right, you know, or the paragraph feels right. And it's just that 
the technical aspects of writing of words, they're just a different medium. And it's not something I'm, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm thrilled that you think that mm. it, that I did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, why the title of this book, The Falling Off Place? Oh, thank you so much for asking me that. This is probably one of the most interesting aspects of this whole project because I've been thinking about, you know, ever since COVID and uh, some uh, another project I did, of trying to go back in time. But how do you title this when you've lived in the same area for so long? And I don't know, it's the miracle um, of the creative process. Because sometimes you don't know where your ideas are coming from. It's maybe a little of this, a little of that. But for some reason, I thought about this play that I read and I saw in high school, Thornton Wilder's Our Town. And there was something about our town, our town, our town. And it, it, and what it, it, I associated in my head was like place, town, uh, a place where people know each other or things are familiar to you. And somehow, uh, falling off just came into my head. Well, politics has played a major part in affecting all of the changes that uh, you've been documenting over the years. Um, do you uh, have any... Uh, <laughs> is politics an important issue for you? <laughs> uh, the um, way politics are changing our city? Well... I think that if anyone takes the time to read the little interview I have in there, they will see. What is so striking to me is that we we are reliving, uh, you know, when you take, uh, I'm going back to part one, yeah. to all, all the, when you, when you the 80s. see the hypocrisy in, the leaders we have now or the fact that where did these people wind up like Giuliani who would have thought that this man had fall it's like Icarus the fall of Icarus you know he had this man that was mayor and it was lofty and all of a sudden he's down a laughing stock but he's always uh, been sad. who he is because I once uh, asked uh, an ex-wife of his uh whether they had some kind of agreement in the divorce settlement yeah. where she wouldn't talk about what happened. She said, yes, and if I ever have to, if I ever do talk about it, he's in deep trouble. I, I, I bet. But just to, to answer your question, I think beyond the fact that the mob guys used to call Donald Trump mm -hmm. Donald Chump, I love that mm -hmm. in the book, Donald Chump, Donald Chump. I'm going to say it one more time, Donald Trump. Um, what has driven this part of New York, what I have really, um, unfortunately, you know, we, we just live in a world that's run by money and power, and that's it. There's, no, there's nothing, there are no morals, there's no sense of, uh, you know, if you find someone that actually has a decent character who will keep to their word, will do a really good job. You know, uh, when you find these people now, you want to kiss their feet, <laughs> you know, because they're, where are they, you know? 
Alas, we have run out of time because there's lots more to talk about. Yes. But um, I hope people will check out this book. It's called A Falling Off Place, The Transformation of Lower Manhattan from Fordham University Press's Empire State Editions. And it has been my great pleasure to talk to the great photographer, Barbara G. Mensch, about her book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonard. And I just want to say how much I truly enjoyed this interview. You are the best. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI uh, during this, uh, these trying times where it's really hard to keep afloat. Uh, public radio in general is suffering, but BAI, which relies 100% on our listeners for our support, we don't take. Um, ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be free speech radio, but also puts us in a very vulnerable place. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of Barbara Mench's book A Falling Off Place so why not make that call now 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, 10 15 $20 a month for as long as you wish. It allows us to plan for the future. And uh, in gratitude, we uh, will send a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now. Because as I said, we rely 100% on listener donations. We, your, your, your support is tax deductible. But don't forget to make that tax deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the station, thank you so much. And we'll see you again soon. <laughs>